Good evening and welcome. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the news hour tonight, earthquake victims in the rebel-held parts of Syria are left without international aid or rescue operations a week after the disaster first struck. The international community is saying that for political reasons we cannot send aid to you. Is this reasonable? Is this a world that can be lived in? U.S. officials shed more light on the unprecedented decision to shoot down four objects over North American airspace within eight days. And thousands protest against the Israeli government's plan to weaken the nation's judiciary. Good evening and welcome to the News Hour. Questions are swirling tonight about unexplained objects floating over the U.S. and Canada and being shot down by U.S. fighter jets. We'll hear more about that shortly. First, though, we turn again to the earthquake disaster in Turkey and Syria. The official death count has now topped 37,000. But against all odds, a few people are still being found alive in the wreckage. Jane Ferguson reports tonight from Turkey. More than a week after the deadly quake, there are still near-miraculous reports of new survivors' rescue. In Hatay province, a 12-year-old boy pulled out alive from under the rubble. And two brothers, aged 8 and 15, also rescued after 181 hours. The rescued brothers are my brother's children. We buried our dead relatives today but we have left all the pains behind after the rescue. But moments of hope are fading fast. The overwhelming story is one of massive loss, as rescuers in some areas start to call off their searches. Experts say a week is reaching the limit of how long a human body can live without water. Freezing temperatures make that chance of survival even slimmer. Now, the focus is on providing food and homes to more than a million in temporary shelters. In the city of Adiaman, the slow response has frustrated survivors like Cengiz Karadag. This is the eighth day. From now on, we want psychological and financial help from the state. Today, an independent business group estimated Turkey's financial damage at more than $84 billion. That damage extends out to rural areas. This snow-covered village of Polat was almost entirely ruined. The people's only hope is to hold on until spring. We sleep in mud. All together with two, three, four families. There aren't enough tents in the village, so we stay together. Across the border in Syria, UN Emergency Relief Coordinator Martin Griffiths visited regime-controlled Aleppo, where he said the rescue phase was coming to a close. Now the humanitarian phase, the urgency of providing shelter, psychosocial care, food, schooling, and a sense of the future for these people, that's our obligation now. For many Syrians, it's a new displacement, after more than a decade of war. Abu Abd al-Khalik and his family managed to escape their home without injury. We now live on the streets. We stay up at night in the front yard, and when we feel we're falling asleep, we get in and sleep in the car that we covered. Now, all they can do is wait and hope that help arrives. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jane Ferguson. Now to the ongoing story of unidentified flying objects crossing into American and Canadian airspace. Four, including a Chinese spy balloon, have been shot down over the last week. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby fielded dozens of questions about the matter today, and specifically what's known about China's balloon program. We were able to determine that China has a high-altitude balloon program for intelligence collection that's connected to the People's Liberation Army. It was operating during the previous administration, but they did not detect it. We detected it. We tracked it. And we have been carefully studying it to learn as much as we can. 
For more on the detection and decisions to shoot down these objects and where they could be coming from, we turn to retired Major General Scott Clancy. Formerly of the Canadian Air Force, his last assignment was Director of Operations at the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. General Clancy, welcome and thanks for joining us. John Kirby and other officials have said we're seeing more of these objects in part because we're looking more, right? There have been some changes at NORAD in terms of ratcheting it up, the uh, defense detection there. Explain to us what, what's happened. What's different at NORAD? What are they seeing now they weren't before? So that's a great question. General Van Erk alluded to it in his Pentagon briefing, uh, the commander of NORAD, right after the shootdown of the Chinese balloon, the very first object. And what he said was he had intelligence gaps that he has since closed. And then after the first shootdown of these unidentified objects in Alaska, it was made clear that uh, they have changed the filters on the radar. So what, th what that means is, is that when you have radar data that's coming in, it can be overwhelming to the operators of that so that they will filter out those things that aren't pertinent to the threats that you're expecting. So for example, in this instance, it was probably, we're not going to look at targets or we don't want any radar information with air speeds below, let's say 80 knots which means that because you're looking for you know, aircraft and cruise missiles that go hundreds of miles an hour, then you wouldn't be looking at that. Now they're seeing that data and, and they're getting more track. So one of the questions, of course, is that the first uh, balloon, a flying object, was clearly they've identified as a Chinese spy balloon. The questions around these last three objects and what they were, and we spoke earlier with a man named Paul Fetkowitz. He's actually uh, head of the largest provider of weather balloons to the U.S. government, including to the military, and he said on any given day there are some 300 balloons up in the air over the United States. He thinks these last three objects that were shot down were likely government or privately funded research devices. Take a listen to what he said. Now NORAD is picking up, potentially lighting up like a Christmas tree because they're picking up all these uh, funded research programs. You know, the, the, the Southern Great Plains research, the Department of Energy, the North Slope Project, uh, all the artillery bases, all the, all the uh, uh, test ranges that we have here in the United States that are launching balloons on a regular basis are all could potentially be picked up because these balloons go up to 100,000 feet, every one of them. General Clancy, could he be correct? Sure, he absolutely could be correct. Uh, as General Van Erk uh, alluded to, and I think that all the agencies in both nations are being very prudent with respect to attribution of what these things are until they get some idea from the wreckages of exactly what they are. Now, I, I will cause a, a little bit of concern here. To, you know, it could be these things. That doesn't really ring true to me, however. And here's the reason why. Uh, in NORAD, all of, not all of these research elements, but the vast majority of weather balloons that are launched are launching within the flight restrictions of the FAA. We're saying that then very quickly afterwards, they're gonna come back down to, that, that's not how these balloons are set to operate and that's why they're not a threat to civil aviation. These were persistent. They were persistent through the airspace and had been tracked in some instances for multiple days. That's more indicative of something that is a intelligence gathering asset and not just a weather balloon that's designed to go up into the atmosphere and then come down. In the minute or so we have left, I guess the question is if they are detecting many more flying objects, at some point there's a determination some of them are enough of a threat to shoot down. You've been inside NORAD there. How is that decision made? Uh, it's uh, made through a uh, complex web of categorization of those systems. And the first step in that is identifying exactly what that is, and which is why NORAD launched aircraft to obtain visual identification of them prior to engaging them. I think the predominant rationale or category or in factor that was involved in these last three was the risk to civil aviation. And that's why that decision was made at that time. That is retired Major General Scott Clancy, formerly Director of Operations at NORAD, joining us tonight. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me.
In the day's other headlines, Ukrainian troops fought to hold back intense Russian assaults in the eastern part of the country. The Ukrainians warned that a new Russian offensive is imminent. And in Brussels, NATO Secretary General said it may have already started. The most important message uh, is that we see no sign whatsoever that uh, President Putin is preparing for peace or ready to negotiate uh, something uh, which will respect uh, the territorial integrity and sovereignty of uh, Ukraine. Uh, uh, what we see is that President Putin and Russia uh, still wants to control Ukraine. As they brace for a Russian offensive, Ukrainian forces trained today in tanks in southwestern Poland. Poland's president was there to observe the training, which is part of the European Union's assistance to Ukraine. Back in this country, the CDC is warning of a pandemic wave of sexual violence and trauma among teenage girls in the U.S. The agency says in 2021, some 30 percent of high school girls reported they seriously considered suicide. That was up 60 percent from a decade earlier. More than one in 10 said they'd been forced to have sex. That was up 27 percent over two years. Officials in Georgia will have to release findings on former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. A judge today ordered that parts of a special grand jury report be made public on Thursday. Prosecutors wanted the full report withheld until they decide on criminal charges. President Biden today fired the architect of the Capitol, the official who oversees the U.S. Capitol complex. Brett Blanton was accused of mismanagement and ethical violations. He also drew criticism for being absent during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had asked for his removal. On Wall Street, stocks closed higher over hopes that inflation is easing. Major indices were up 1 to 1.5%. 1 the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 376 points to close at 34,246. The Nasdaq rose 173 points. The S&P 500 added 46. And the Kansas City Chiefs and their fans are basking in the glow of a second Super Bowl win in four years. The Chiefs claim the trophy Sunday, beating the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35. Quarterback Patrick Mahomes, playing on an injured ankle, won his second Super Bowl MVP award. And still to come on the PBS NewsHour, a train derailment leading to the release of toxic chemicals in Ohio prompts broader safety concerns. We explore the latest federal effort to help renters. What's behind a sharp rise in maternal mortality? And a digital museum helps return lost family photos and videos to their original owners. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Let's take a deeper look now at the aftermath of the earthquake. In Syria, it brutalized a community that's already suffered more than a decade of war. Rebel-held provinces in the country's northwest now face a double disaster, the deadly quake and little to no outside help. Special correspondent Jane Ferguson and video journalist Jorgen Samso traveled over the weekend to the city of Afrin in Syria's northwest Aleppo province. There they found death and heartache, but also stories of survival and resilience. One week since the earth shook lives apart here and no one came to help. In northwest Syria, they're not going to come. No international rescue operations, no search dogs, no paramedics. <laughs> People in this rebel-held enclave watched their loved ones struggle and die slowly under the rubble in the hellish days since the earthquake. When we reached the town of Jindarez in Aleppo province, they were pleading for their message to reach the outside world. Don't help us all the world. Here, we are people. We are, we are human. We, we are, uh, we, we need life. The local volunteer group, the White Helmets, once nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for saving thousands from airstrikes, did what they could to pull people from the rubble. But their diggers and rudimentary tools struggled against this new and massive natural disaster. When the earthquake struck here, people's only source of help was the white helmets. They've been pulling people out of the rubble due to Russian airstrikes and attacks by the Assad regime for years. But they only have a certain amount of equipment. And now, almost a week after the earthquake, 
they themselves have not received any additional help. Our visit to northwest Syria was a rare opportunity to access the area, a place where five million have fled to escape the wrath of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. The Turkish government tightly controls its border with this area. Rebels here, many of them extremist Islamist fighters, have an agreement to cooperate with the Turkish authorities. But that hasn't helped get aid in this past week. The contrast to Turkey, where well-equipped rescue teams from all over the world have searched for people under the rubble, is glaring. A man-made border decides between life and death. Our young children who are under the rubble are imploring people to take them out of the rubble. And the international community is saying that for political reasons we cannot send aid to you. Is this reasonable? Is this a world that can be lived in? Salahuddin Hawa taught comparative literature at Aleppo University before the war. He and his wife and six children all survived the earthquake, but they have been forced to sleep elsewhere as their home is not safe. The news hour first met him outside Aleppo over 10 years ago, as the resistance to Assad was at its height. But you know, when you talk about an earthquake, a violent earthquake, politics is intermingled with uh, humanitarian, uh, with the uh, humanitarian crisis. You cannot take politics away from our life because we are here because of politics. We are here, we have been displaced of our houses, of our cities, because we were political activists, only because we said no to Bashar al-Assad. The politics of who gets what help has never been more stark. Syrian regime areas have received aid trucks from the UN, and rebel-held areas are getting some of the usual food and medical supplies, but there has been no additional assistance and no disaster response units. Imagine that this earthquake happened in anywhere around the world. What would the situation be? Can you say that we, we will not send, for example, aid because that, that country is a communist? or a capitalist, or whatever. No, we do not do that. This place has been pounded by Syrian government forces and their Russian allies for years. Many of the buildings were made poorly by the displaced and weakened by the constant military bombardment, making them all the more vulnerable. And so, people's homes became death traps, entire families gone. Like little Mohammed Mohammeds, the seven-year-old now lays in the Afrin public hospital after his home collapsed. Ten perished, including his parents and all his siblings. He spent three days under the rubble next to them before being pulled out alive. Yasmin Marjan is a distant relative and now all he has in the world. She shows us pictures of his family. No one survived, she tells me, only Mohammed. He's had an operation on his leg already. Um, he has a broken hand. But beyond that, he, 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 the, the, the lack of wounds is, is really remarkable after three days under the rubble. Children have been orphaned at a cruel rate in Syria's war for nearly 12 years. Babies like Aya now join their ranks. When the white helmets pulled her freezing, bruised body from the wreckage, videos of her were beamed around the world. Her mother had given birth in the rubble, dying. We visited Aya in another hospital in Afrin town. She has recovered, is thriving, and beautiful. Aya has come to embody Syria's pain and survival, the impossible endurance of this place the world forgot. The doctor who treated her when she came in, Hani Marouf, is still overwhelmed when he speaks about her. How do you explain her survival? American. It's her story. It's short video about our story. We have 12 years surviving like here. <laughs> Those like him have been fighting to keep Syrians alive for years under impossible conditions. The man who take it from under the rebel hold here like this. Why? Why you don't hold this like this? It's so simple. We will still fight. Much of that fight now is for survival. More families forced to survive out in the open, 
sleeping in tents until they can somehow recreate the homes they once built from lives already ruined by war. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jane Ferguson in Afrin, Syria. In eastern Ohio, residents have been on edge for more than a week following an explosive train derailment and a toxic chemical leak. Evacuation orders have been lifted and the all-clear has been given, but in East Palestine, a small community of about 5,000 people on the Pennsylvania border, that's done little to calm anxieties. It was like something out of a disaster movie. A massive train derailment led to an explosion, causing ominous plumes of smoke to billow over the quiet village of East Palestine. But it's what's in that smoke that has some residents still concerned about returning home. The train, operated by Norfolk Southern, was carrying several toxic chemicals used in plastic and paint manufacturing, including the carcinogenic vinyl chloride. Residents within a one-mile radius of the derailment were ordered to evacuate immediately. Resident Melissa Henry recalled the moment she knew she had to leave with her son. It smelled like really, really strong paint thinner, and then his eyes turned like bloodshot, and he started coughing, and I was like, yeah, we're leaving. After a controlled release of the toxic chemical from five of the derailed train cars, local officials consulted the Environmental Protection Agency and lifted the evacuation order on Wednesday. We know everybody's frustrated, everybody wants to be in their homes. We did the best we can. Uh, the number one goal was public safety. Now residents are reluctantly returning with deep anxiety about the lasting impact of the chemical leak on their health. Linda Murphy lives roughly three miles from the site of the train derailment. She's worried about what she's seeing in waterways near her home. There were several dead fish floating at multiple locations. That's what we bathe in, that's what we drink, that's what we cook with, and they could not reassure me that the water was safe to drink. Officials say the derailment was likely caused by a mechanical issue with the rail car axle. Even though there have been no deaths reported, there's deep concern about the long-term effects. And we are joined now by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Governor DeWine, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you. Good to be with you. Your office deemed it safe for residents to return to East Palestine of Wednesday of last week. Days later, we learned that the EPA informed the railroad of several other chemicals that were not publicly discussed. How can you assure people that the area is safe when we're, we're still learning more about the, the severity of this disaster? You know, we rely on the experts, what they tell us. Uh, we continue to monitor the air. We continue to monitor the water. Um, they, they continue to tell us, the EPA continues to tell us that it is, in fact, safe. Uh, where we've seen some traces uh, is in, in the water. Uh, which has gone into the into the Ohio River. Uh, again, the experts tell us that it is such a small, small quantity uh, that there's we really should not worry about it, but we're going to continue to monitor it. In addition to that, you know, we have gone around to the different, not only the public water sources and tested all of them, and we'll continue to test them, but we've gone around uh, to people in that area who have private wells and offer to test that, that, uh, those private wells as well. A question about that, because neither the railroad nor the Ohio EPA is sure how much of these chemicals spilled into the soil and into the water. And as you mentioned, there are a number of people who rely on private wells for their drinking water, as is the case in many rural areas across this country. Um, how can you assure people that their drinking water is safe, not just today, but moving forward? We're going to continue to test it. Um, you know, we, we have an obligation to the people to continue to test, and that's what, that's what we have done. Uh, the soil itself is in the process of, of being removed. Uh, the only way you can really clean it up, it was, a, it was a, obviously a big mess, a big spill. Uh, the only way you really can clean it up uh, and to be sure it's gone is to go down and dig it out and remove it, and that's what's happening. Who is shouldering the, the cost of that remediation right now? It's the railroad. Look, the railroad caused this problem, and they're, they're the ones who are shouldering the burden of, of cleaning it up. 
Uh, are you confident that Norfolk Southern can be trusted to, to handle this, this work and cover the costs moving forward? Look, we're, we're not uh, taking anyone's word for anything. Uh, we're monitoring what they're doing every single day. We have people on the ground. Uh, we're following what they're doing, and we're going to hold them accountable. That's our job. What's your message to, to folks in East Palestine and the affected areas uh, who, who really aren't sure what to believe? Um, and, and don't trust the railroad. They don't trust that the help. They don't trust the help that's coming from the railroad, and they don't really trust uh, the word of elected officials. Well, we're not asking them to trust the railroad. We're not asking them to trust really elected officials. What we're asking them to do is to follow the science, and when the experts, the best experts that we can find, uh, are monitoring this, they're going to continue to monitor it. They're going to continue to test the water and monitor the air. Uh, and that will that will continue. So it is we're asking them to, uh, I guess, accept what what the experts are saying, the best people that we can find about you know what is safe. Um, I understand uh, people's uh, concern. Uh, you know, if I lived there, I would have concern as well. But again, you know, we've been very transparent. Uh, I've been over there uh, several times myself. We've held a number of press conferences. We're going to continue to you know, publish uh, what the test is finding, uh, what the test results are. And I think by being transparent, by being as open as we can, that's, that's how you engender trust from the, from the public. But we don't take anything for granted. Uh, we're going to hold the railroad accountable. Uh, do you have any sort of larger concerns about rail safety, uh, given Norfolk Southern's track record? Well, sure. I mean, we want to see what the results from the federal government uh, finishes their investigation. They're the ones who come in and do the analysis of why this occurred. Uh, and so, again, yes, you certainly do. You can't go through a, a situation like we just went through and are dealing with right now and not be concerned when, we're, uh, you know, railroads are carrying very toxic material um, and they have a, a, a catastrophic a uh, wreck uh, such as this, yeah, sure, it, it, it's very concerning. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. The recently elected far-right government in Israel took a clear step today toward passing highly controversial judicial reform, and its actions have created a massive reaction among Israelis who stand against it, saying they could fundamentally alter Israel's democracy. William Brangham reports. The streets of Jerusalem were flooded today, with the largest demonstrations Israel has seen in years. Protesters thronged outside the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, following weeks of mounting frustrations and other demonstrations. The target? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and a proposed overhaul of Israel's judicial system. Netanyahu and his supporters argue the Supreme Court is too powerful and needs to be reined in. But critics contend these laws badly weaken the court, tighten the prime minister's grip on power, and could spell the downfall of Israeli democracy. These are the crucial days for Israel's future and Israel's identity, whether it's going to be a democracy or a fascist regime. Inside the Knesset, chaos erupted as Netanyahu's allies pushed the reform through a committee. Opposition lawmakers chanted shame at their far-right counterparts. Opposition leader Yair Lapid called for further demonstrations. We will not hide in the houses as they try to turn the state of Israel into a dark dictatorship and shut us up. They will not shut us up. In comments today, Netanyahu condemned the outbursts. I call on the leaders of the opposition, stop it. Stop deliberately dragging the country into anarchy. Most citizens of Israel don't want anarchy. They want a substantive dialogue, and in the end, they want unity. Complicating the issue is that Netanyahu is currently facing corruption charges, charges he denies, but legally he stands to gain from the law's passage. His office would have more control over judicial appointments and less checks on its executive powers. Despite the mass protests, Israelis are closely divided over these reforms. 
41% are against, and roughly 44% support. Last night, Isaac Herzog, Israel's president, which is largely a ceremonial role, appealed for dialogue and compromise, but warned of potentially disastrous outcomes. We are long past being in a political argument. Rather, we are on the brink of constitutional and social collapse. The legislation now heads to the full parliament for a series of votes that are likely to stretch on for weeks. For more on all of this, we are joined now by David Makovsky. He's the director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And previously, he served as a senior advisor on Israeli-Palestinian negotiations during the Obama administration. Uh, David, great to have you back on the NewsHour. As I mentioned, these are the biggest protests that Israel has seen in years. And critics are arguing, look, if these reforms go through, this so dramatically upends the balance of power in the country that it will become almost unrecognizable. Is that a fair characterization? I think it's it's more accurate than not, um, because basically it would concentrate the power in the hands of the executive. But Israel always had this uh, independence of the judiciary that was its pride and joy. Uh, it would... Uh, it was it was part of its social cohesion, its resilience all these years that it had a check on executive power. But if you're able to politicize the judges, if you're able to have a bare majority of, of the parliament uh, able to override a Supreme Court decision, what you're going to see over time is the evisceration of that independent judiciary, which has had pride of place in Israel for the the 75 years of its existence. I mean, Netanyahu and his supporters argue that the Supreme Court is too liberal, that it has too much power, and that their reforms are what get it closer to a, a, a more equitable distribution of power. Where do you come down on that? I, I think that's not a, a fair characterization. You know, there'll be times they will cherry pick certain points of, well, oh, in America, the Senate Judiciary Committee has a hearing. But the United States, we have protections that Israel doesn't have. We have a constitution. If there's an amendment, it requires three quarters of the state. We have, uh, you know, two branches of, of, of Congress. We have uh, term limits. Israel doesn't have any of those things. So what you're going to see is that those protections that Israel not have are now going to be weakened further by politicizing who gets on the courts through the selection committee and how they're able to override court decisions with ease. So I, I, the, the critics are worried that the very identity of the state is at stake. It will still be a democracy in the sense there'll be elections, but democracy is more than elections. Um, we can't overlook the fact that Netanyahu is under indictment and other members of his coalition have very strong disagreements with this court. Is, is it inappropriate to look at these reforms through that lens? I think it's very fair to look at it. It's a perfect storm what's going on. Um, basically, you have a situation, as you pointed out, the prime minister is in the middle of a corruption trial on three charges. You've got the ultra-Orthodox. They're mad at the courts because the courts want to always ensure that they are not exempt from the draft. There's a three-year military conscription. And also the settler uh, constituency is upset at the courts because they feel that they are a constraint, a break, on settlements in terms of Palestinian land usage and the like. So every element of the Netanyahu coalition has its own individual grievance, and now it's kind of coming to a crescendo where all these individual grievances are becoming a collective grievance, and that is causing them to want Netanyahu to, to stand tough against 100,000 demonstrators uh, who are coming against it every week. But it's not just 100,000. The point is that the polls do show that a majority of the Israelis want consensus. And now you have the Israeli president. He's come out with his own principles that he feels could forge the very consensus that has uh, not been chosen. But I think there's a sense in Israel that there's a, a fraying of the social fabric, that the very social cohesion that has been at the core of Israel and allowed it to fight against its enemies when it felt threatened for these 75 years, that is fraying. And that is something that the United States cares deeply about because these are two countries that have been joined by common interests and also 
common values. And if those common values are now imperiled, that's something the United States cares about. All right. David Makovsky of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to be with you. With the goal of addressing the nation's soaring rent prices, the Biden White House has announced a new effort to protect tenants and make renting more affordable. Laura Barone-Lopez has more. The pandemic left Jessica Russell eight months behind on rent, laid off and out of options. The fact that we were possibly getting evicted, you know, it became more and more of a reality and not a possibility. Jessica, an art teacher, and her partner Nikki, a tattoo artist and Marine Corps veteran, met here in Baltimore, Maryland, and bonded as creatives. But in March 2021, they were both out of work and struggling to make monthly payments or coming up with cash for costly security deposits. It was probably one of the hardest things that I would say that I've gone through. You have a family to provide for. You want to support and you know uphold not only your spouse, but we have animals. So all of those types of things are running through your head of like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? It's okay. Facing eviction, they applied for and received federal rental assistance through the nonprofit United Way of Central Maryland. Eight months of back pay plus funds for three months rent got them back on their feet. Do you ever think at all about where you would be if that assistance didn't come through? Absolutely. I know for sure that we would be facing hardship. If we didn't get that assistance and kind of get that boost running, we probably would be facing homelessness. But even though she has work again and housing, Jessica says roughly half of her income goes towards rent. She's not alone. More than 40% of tenants in America meet the federal definition of rent burdened, meaning they spend at least 30% of their income on rent. The assistance Jessica received from Congress. The bill is passed. Part of some 46 billion over multiple coronavirus aid packages is all but spent by the state of Maryland. That, plus persistent inflation, rising interest rates, and supply chain issues in the construction industry have meant evictions are creeping back to pre-pandemic levels. Jessica worries for herself and others. Do you think that your local elected officials or national elected officials are doing enough to help renters like yourself? Absolutely not. The White House recently outlined regulations and a bill of rights to make housing more affordable and to empower renters like Jessica. But the immediate impact is questionable. Housing is a right in America. President Biden vowed to tackle the housing crisis within days of taking office. And after a year of meetings with industry and tenant advocates, announced a slate of actions. Agencies will begin collecting data on unfair rental practices, like tenant background checks and egregious rent hikes. The Justice Department will review competition in the market. And the Federal Housing Finance Agency will explore ways to protect renters with leases at federally mortgaged properties. It's the first time in decades, I think probably the first time since the Great Depression, that the federal government is acknowledging that there could be an important federal role in preventing rent gouging. Diane Yentel is the president of the National Low Income Housing Coalition. She says the administration took a first step, but more is needed. They're not actually implementing these new protections now. They're not even committing to ensuring that they will. Um, they're only committing to a process to consider such protections. The president's proposal includes a renter's bill of rights that issued guidelines for safe, affordable housing with fair leases and anti-discrimination standards. But it's not enforceable, and tenant advocates hoped for more full-throated protections against price gouging and other bad practices. One of the really unfortunate omissions from the announcement is any administrative action to hold corporate landlords accountable for egregious predatory and sometimes unlawful behavior during and since the pandemic. In 99.9% .9 of the cases in America, there are good relations between landlords and tenants. Jerry Howard says most landlords are working in good faith to keep their tenants housed. He's the CEO of the National Association of Home Builders, a trade association that represents landlords, property managers, and builders. During the pandemic, when renters were at their most vulnerable, uh, it, it's been the landlords of America that, with their own money, with their own money, were paying the electric bills, the heating bills, the air conditioning bills, and were working with tenants 
to make sure that they were not in evicted. He says the Biden plan is misguided, focused too much on renters and not on the forces squeezing the housing market. It's too expensive for builders, whether they're for-profit builders or non-for-profit builders, to build enough low-income housing with the amount of regulations that they have to comply with. That housing shortage is significant. At least 1.5 million homes by the most conservative estimates. And the demand for affordable housing far outpaces the supply of it. The White House says they'll keep pushing Congress. The president's upcoming budget proposal will include funding for veterans housing for families like Jessica's. Five, six years ago. Remembering how close she came to being homeless. Jessica said she hopes the administration's latest announcement is the beginning. I think there is a stigma around um, the housing crisis. And I truly honestly believe that if there was more of a balance when it comes to cost of living, that other people would have that exact same opportunity to become successful members of society. Renting for now, Jessica and Nikki hope to save enough to buy their own home a dream many Americans have had to postpone due to the high cost of housing. It's supposed to already go up to like maybe 50 or 60 degrees. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Laura Barone-Lopez in Baltimore, Maryland. A recent study found a disturbing rise in the number of deaths among pregnant women and new mothers during the pandemic, and not just because of complications from pregnancy and childbirth. The report by the Journal of the American Medical Association found that from 2019 to 2020, there were 4,535 deaths among pregnant women and new mothers. That was up from 1,588 deaths pre-pandemic. Native American women faced the greatest risk by far during this period. They were three and a half times more likely to die than white women. To better understand what's driving this increase, I recently spoke with Jessica Whitehawk, the founder of the Totolok Birth Justice Center on the Yakima Nation Reservation in Washington State. Jessica Whitehawk, welcome to the News Hour, and thank you for joining us. Let's just begin with knowing what you know about maternal care for Native women going into the pandemic. Did you expect to see these kinds of increases? Yes. When we went into the pandemic, our team knew that there was going to be a lot of um, issues that were going to be revealed and intensified, but we didn't quite understand until it started, until we started seeing it now, what it actually was going to be. Um, but we did anticipate it, yes. Tell me why. Why did you anticipate that increase going in? For many years, and historically, we have had really high infant and maternal mortality rates. And as public health crises such as a pandemic happens, we know that in general that the populations that are already struggling were going to struggle even more. And so that's that was um, a fear that we had when, when the pandemic began. So tell us about those struggles. What does prenatal and postnatal care look like for most of the women that you serve? For most of the women that we serve, they are experiencing health care through federally qualified health care systems, which have very limited office visit time and and the care that's provided is subpar. During a prenatal visit, they often only have three to seven minutes per visit, which isn't enough time to be able to ask questions and understand what's going on with your body or even for a doctor to understand what complications or what um, additional things are needed beyond prenatal care. Hey Jessica, I found it interesting in the report, um, they found pregnant and recently pregnant black women also faced an increased risk. Their odds of death were double those of white women in this period they were looking at. When you look back to the pandemic, it really laid bare a lot of the structural racism that exists in our healthcare system. Did you see that among the population of Native women you serve as well? Absolutely. There was structural racism there before, and as the pandemic began, it really opened those cracks in a way that revealed numbers that 
cannot be ignored. We know pregnancy is a time of enormous stress on the body, but there were all these other causes of death not linked to pregnancy or complications from that itself. Native women five times as likely to die in car accidents during or after the pregnancy, three times as likely to die of drug overdoses or homicide, four times as likely to die by suicide. In your role trying to support these women, where do you even begin? How do you address all this? A lot of the reasons why this is happening is very historical. Violence against Native American women has taken place since the inception of America. This has not changed over time. We still have very high missing and murdered Indigenous people rates. We are in is still in a battle with this type of violence. Um, what our organization does and what we believe are the values is that when you rebuild community and support for each other and start getting access to high quality care, support through other women, support through culture, support through language and rebuilding our nationhood, that that's the way that we want to address all of these numbers and the things that, that we're seeing. Jessica, as you know, maternal health is really a mix of social, social factors, economic factors, a lot of things, but it's widely seen as a key indicator in overall social well-being. When you look at these latest numbers, what does that say to you about that? It's scary. I feel, um, I feel that this is, it is absolutely our life givers are the people that determine the, the foundation for our future. As we continue to build these systems that are grounded in community and continue to support through culture and healing, that these numbers will improve. But this is gonna take a long time to fix. It's taken a long time to get here and it's gonna take a lot of work and a long time to fix. That is Jessica Whitehawk of the Totowoc's Birth Justice Center in Washington State. Jessica, thank you for your time. Thank you. We're going to take a look now at a digital museum dedicated to the idea of lost memories that's the result of one man's extraordinary efforts to return neglected or misplaced family mementos to their owners. Special correspondent Christopher Booker reports from New York for our arts and culture series, Canvas. They can show everything from life's big moments to snapshots of the everyday. But these videos all share the same purpose, to find out just who these memories might belong to. It's a task undertaken by a man who's been dubbed the Sherlock of TikTok. Any photograph is my first priority, but I'm looking for anything that's technically a, a lost memory. For 27-year-old David Guttenmacher, this search often begins at a thrift store. It could be a home movie, a film reel, VHS tape, a diary, letters, photo albums, and even memory cards that are still stuck inside of cameras. During the early days of the pandemic in 2020, Guttenmacher was looking for a project when he stumbled upon a bucket full of old photos. Immediately I thought that if my family photographs were in there, I would want someone to flip over the back, read my family name on it, and then try to find me online. So I thought I might as well start doing that for other people. I found this strip of film at the thrift store in New York. So he turned to social media and created what is now the popular Museum of Lost Memories a TikTok and Instagram account of the same name with more than a million followers combined. This is just some of the stuff that I have collected over the last two years. Guttenmacher, uh, a social media way. manager for a healthcare company by day, brings his finds home to digitize and post to his accounts, hoping the social media platforms will help deliver the old videos, letters, pictures, and anything else he finds to their original owners. Is there any commonality in the ways in which these items have ended up in the places where you found them? Yeah, I think most of the things that I find come from either a move or after a family member passes away, a lot of the items just get misplaced, boxed up, cleared out, and people don't really know what they're getting rid of. So far, only about 10% of the materials has made its way back home. But whether a return happens or not, he believes the effort is worth it. I just love it. I think it's important. I think it's extremely important. I think that people deserve to have their memories back. And I think that everyday life is important to be preserved. Just a month and a half after starting the museum, 
Guttmacher was able to make his first connection with this tape. Yeah, I found this at a thrift store on Long Island. The only clues we had to go off of were that it said Africa, but right away I realized it was a vacation from Africa, so they likely weren't from there. And then there was a shirt. He was wearing a shirt that said Wesleyan University. That shirt was the key that ultimately helped identify Jono Marcus. At first, being contacted, I didn't think it was real. I thought it was spam. Three faces are coming along. How you doing? In 1989, Marcus was 23 years old when he and his parents went on a safari to Kenya and Tanzania. His mom brought a Sony Mini DV camcorder and captured this footage that would be found by Guttmacher more than 30 years later. I'm talking to you. <laughs> and we didn't really lose track of it. Like, we lost it. You know, it just gets buried in, in the stuff. And then my father died around seven years ago. And when my mom moved house, you know, it's a little, little cassette tape, so it just kind of got lost in there. Lost until Guttenmacher's post went viral, and a team of volunteers started chipping in to try to find out who this family was. And this woman, Julie, sent me a link, and I looked at it in disbelief, like, sure enough, my mom and dad and I are trending on TikTok, which I didn't even know what that meant at the time. So it turns out that the video garnered so many comments that they... TikTokers decided to do some internet sleuthing and found me. Marcus, who is now 56 and lives in Bethesda, Maryland, ended up posting another video on TikTok, recreating parts of the original footage with his wife and children. He says these two videos, which have been viewed more than 10 million times, struck a chord with people during the pandemic. I think it presented opportunities for people to, to finally just feel themselves, let go, not be scared. And there's a lot of um, TikTok posts that include videos of people crying when they see it. And part of it is very, it's a very simple kind of family on a safari. And I think the ending with my father and then showing that he had passed, um, that just, as an ending, that just really hit a lot of people. Since then, Guttenmacher has made several more connections, including with the Freedmans, a Jewish family who lived in Vienna during World War II and lost these photos taken in 1943. With the help from his followers online, he was able to track down their relatives and later discovered they had likely fled to New York. And we were able to get in contact with that family and return those memories to them, which they had never seen before. And it was just like, it was the perfect story from start to finish of having just one or two clues and then having so many people participate in trying to find that family and then being able to find them in the end. With the viral success of his posts, people from all over the world have begun sending him materials in hopes the museum can help find the original owners. I mean, people find things in Jordan, India, South America, all over the world people have sent in things that they find at their local thrift stores or even on the ground in the street. We watched as he opened one package from the United Kingdom. Oh wow, look at this one. Looks like a group of miners. It contains both a picture and a letter written in cursive addressed to Jim, Ruth, and the boys. It begins with, birthdays keep coming along, and it's nice to think that we're remembered. If I could leave anybody with any message, it's to preserve your own family history. Scan your photographs, write down names on the back of them. If you know, you're young and your grandparents are still around, and sit with them and ask them who's in what photograph. Interview them, get their story down on video, convert VHS tapes, digitize your film reels. All of this stuff is going away, and the sooner you have it preserved, the better. Guttenmacher believes it's an effort that will pay off for generations to come. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Christopher Booker in New York. I love that so much. Yeah, Rescuing memories. Yeah, absolutely. What a good mission. That is the news hour for tonight. Join us back here again tomorrow when we're going to look at how families are trying to hold social media companies legally accountable for the growing mental health crisis among teenagers. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for being with us.